Well, good morning. Um, <clears throat> excited for us to dive into God's Word, continuing our, our Advent series uh, that we are calling Treasuring Christ in Isaiah. Um, also very excited to preach from a new pulpit this morning. Um, <clears throat> and uh, as, um, as you open up your Bible to Isaiah 42, which is where we'll be this morning, uh, I want to talk about the Christmas gatherings that mark uh, the Christmas season. Um, we uh, are now really over halfway through the Christmas season, which is pretty wild. Um, and uh, this morning, it especially feels and, and, and looks like Christmas, right? Uh, the snow falling, the, the chill in the air. Uh, we're now 10 days away from Christmas. Uh, hopefully that doesn't produce too much anxiety uh, in your heart uh, as you hear that. But it is upon us. And, um, and one of the things that I love about the Christmas season uh, are the gatherings, uh, the getting together of people. Um, and I think there are two essential things uh, to a good uh, gathering in general, but especially a good Christmas gathering, and that's people and food, right? If you don't have people at your gathering, um, then you're just hanging out with yourself, right? Uh, so uh, that's not a gathering. Um, and if you don't have food at your gathering, um, one might question what your purpose is uh, as you get together, right? So um, my small group just had a, a Christmas gathering this last week, and um, there were things wrapped in bacon, so that tells you what kind of gathering it was. It was incredible. Um, and uh, shout out to Team Rudolph Sparkle Pants, who won Christmas trivia. Um, if you want to know about that name, I can tell you later. Uh, but uh, the Christmas uh, season brings these gatherings that are so enjoyable and fun and, and memorable. And uh, I'm not saying this is true about my small group. In fact, it's not. But uh, at some gatherings, um, there are people that you might like to call a me monster. Uh, have you ever met a me monster? Um, a me monster is, is the person who, uh, whatever conversation is happening, they, they are going to hijack it and make it about their story, right? Um, so, you know, you're... You're talking about, you know, something that happened to you. You know, you got you got a speeding ticket, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, I got two speeding tickets within an hour on the same day. You know, like um, you're, you're telling uh, a story. This is my favorite, a comedian named Brian Regan here in a minute. Um, I'll let you listen to him and not me. But um, he tells the story of, you know, at a dinner party talking about getting his wisdom teeth pulled. And he tells the story of getting two wisdom teeth pulled. And, and there's somebody at the party that's like, oh, yeah. Well, I got four wisdom teeth pulled and they were impacted and they were all around and, you know, just really hard to get out. And, 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 and this me monster kind of mentality. And um, as I was typing up his joke, uh, it dawned on me that one of the things that you should do in public speaking is never tell another comedian's joke. Right. Like it never goes off. Uh, as good when you tell somebody else's joke. And so uh, this morning I invited Brian uh, to come and, uh, and share his me monster joke with us. You tell me if you've ever met a person like this. I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. 
They must love knowing they can be anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some meat monster, is doing this thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Always better to let a comedian uh, tell, tell his own joke. My wife loves it when I listen to Brian Regan and other comedians because I then think that I need to embody their personality and tell all the jokes the same way. And so usually on a long road trip, <clears throat> I uh, try at some point to, to take on the persona of Brian Regan and, and tell jokes. And that lasts for about 30 minutes and then she's tired uh, of those jokes. But that's a me monster, right? The person who tries to steal all the glory. The person who makes it all about themselves. So, so here's my question. Is God a me monster? Is God the one who makes it all about himself? Is God, in being zealous for his glory, a me monster? And I think in, on one hand, in the positive light, we could say that God is truly a me monster. He's zealous for his glory. If you read through the Bible, one thing you will find unmistakably is that God is indeed zealous for his glory. And, and the question in all of this is, can God be zealous for his glory and can God be for us at the same time? Can he be zealous about himself and his glory and yet be for our good? Just as we sang a moment ago. If you look in our passage, we'll read this in a minute, but in Isaiah 42, uh, there's kind of this banner verse uh, that, uh, that we can see that, that kind of summarizes what, what Isaiah is saying here. It says, uh, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And in fact, this, this is what Advent is all about. Advent is about God's glory. Did you, did you catch it in John 1? In John 1, 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One uh, Advent devotional that we recommended by Paul Tripp, uh, he summarizes it this way that I think so beautifully captures this um, coming together of the incarnation and glory. It says, the incarnation of Jesus is about a glorious Savior coming to give glorious grace to people who have forsaken his glory for temporarily satisfying shadow glories of the created world. Advent is about God's glory. 
and, and a glorious Savior coming to give glorious grace to people who have forsaken His glory for these shadow glories of the created world. So when we talk about glory, this is a word that's so familiar to, uh, to, to the Christian faith that it's one of those things that familiarity can, can sometimes um, make it uh, easy for us not to fully understand what we're talking about when we talk about God's glory. And when we, when we talk about God's glory, it carries the idea in the Old Testament of, of weightiness, of, of worth, of wealth, of splendor, majesty. It's kind of the idea. One has said that it's the combined magnitude of all of God's attributes and qualities put together. Um, one, one of my favorite um, definitions is by John Piper, who says, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It, it's God... Um, going public with the display of who he is for us to see and behold. It's God showing us the, the, the fullness of his character. And we see this in the Bible. It happens in these moments of, uh, of God with Moses at the burning bush and, and on Mount Sinai, he reveals his glory. And, and in a moment with, with, um, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, when God's glory is beheld in the temple and, and we get a glimpse of it at the birth of Christ and at the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration of Christ, all these events of Christ's life and, and at the resurrection, it's like God pulling back the curtain of who he is and showing us himself. And his character being put on display. In a way, we could say that God's glory is putting on display all of who he is so that we might see and adore him for who he is. Another author, J.I. Packer, says there's two parts of God's glory uh, that we should understand. It's, it's God freely and graciously revealing himself. But, but God's glory, in a, in a way, has a, a reciprocal loop to it, that when God reveals himself, he reveals himself so that we might see and praise him in response. So that's why God's, we can say that God is glorious and that we glorify God, right? Those two things go together. God is glorious and the only right response to God's glory when he shows who he is to us is to respond by glorifying him, which means to praise to, to speak of his worth and his majesty. It's, it's to say, God, I've, I've seen this glimpse of who you are revealed in Jesus through God's word, through your acts of redemption and, and your mercy put on display. And all I can do is say, you are worthy. You are glorious. We, we saw it in, in the Advent story in, in Luke chapter 2 when, when the, the announcement comes that good news of great joy will be found in a Savior who's born in Bethlehem. What do the angels show up and say? Glory to God in the highest. And then what do the shepherds do when they see Jesus? They go and they, they tell everyone, praising and glorifying God. This is how God intends for us to respond to him. He's zealous for his glory. And in being zealous for his glory, he intends for us to see that and to respond in adoration. And so this question of can God be zealous for his glory and be for us brings us to Isaiah 42. <clears throat> in Isaiah 42, uh, we, we see God speak of his glory and reveal his glory. And he does it in a, in a unique way that, that we're going to see. But before we read particularly our verses, I, I want to set the context for Isaiah 42. We've been talking about Isaiah and jumping around. I know there's a lot 
that we've taken in. We've been in Isaiah 7 and 9 and Isaiah 35. Well, Isaiah 40 is kind of like a new section in a way in Isaiah. We've gone from Isaiah 1 through 39, which has an emphasis on, um, on a, a king like David who will come, a Davidic king who will come and establish God's kingdom and reign. Well, in Isaiah 40, there's this emphasis upon the servant of the Lord who will come and accomplish God's redemptive work. Um, and, and so there's this uh, change that takes place in Isaiah 40 where we see God says he's going to comfort his people. He's going to send a messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. And, and God's going to come. Remember, Israel's in exile. Uh, they, they've experienced exile through Assyria. And, and, and Isaiah is saying, because of your rebellion, because of your hard-heartedness, the Babylonians are coming and, and you're going to experience exile. They, they've been taken out of their land. They've been stripped of the ability to worship God as He commands because of their rebellion, because of their hard-heartedness. And God is saying, I haven't forgotten you. My, my, my discipline doesn't mean that I don't see you. My refining doesn't mean that I'm not coming for you. I'm faithful to my promises. I'm going to come and comfort you. And, and now we begin to see in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, which we'll look at that passage next week. This servant that God is going to send will be the centerpiece of how God is going to bring redemption to his people. And, and all of this sets up when we get to Isaiah 41, it, it, it speaks to the spiritual condition of Israel. You see, God is so concerned for his glory that he will not share it with anyone. No God that we could make with our hands, no God that we deem is within us, no, no, no supreme supremacy that we give to another person or to a pursuit in our life. God is zealous for his glory and no one can share it with God. And, and we see how this contrast is set up in Isaiah 41 and 42. If you look just at a few verses, we see it in Isaiah 41 and verse 24 and uh, Isaiah 41 verse 29 uh, our new screen, which I'm really excited about. We, uh, we haven't quite figured out our spacing, so forgive us on, uh, on that. Isaiah 42.1, we see this contrast. Look at the, the behold that starts each of these sections. It's, it's setting up this intentional contrast so that we see the worthlessness of anything that we put above God and the supremacy of God over all things. And as, in, in verses 41 through uh, in chapter 41, verses 21 through 23, God actually invites the idols that, that the people of Israel have given themselves to to make their case. It's, it's God speaking directly to idols for these few verses, saying, make your case, show your validity. And he says in verse 24, behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Strong words, right? Within the context, God, God is going to show Israel that though they are in exile to Babylon, God hasn't forgotten them. In fact, he's going to bring about another ruler, another emperor. And he names him by name, Cyrus, who's the Persian mighty warrior and emperor, who's going to come and defeat the Babylonians. So just imagine this. God, God has put Israel in exile under the Babylonians, and he's going to use another godless emperor to come in and defeat the Babylonians to release Israel and it's the Persian king who will actually send Israel back to Jerusalem and will pay for the temple to re be rebuilt so that the right worship of God in the Old Testament can be restored. God uses the most unlikely of people and circumstances to accomplish his mission. 
It's not a blessing upon them, per se, but it shows that God, we sang it this morning, He's sovereign over all. He's in control of all things, working all things out. What a good word for us when, when we see all kinds of things on display in our world, all kinds of scoundrels who will put in places of power and authority, whether it be a president or it be a senator or it be a leader in a community. God is at work, not condoning, but working out his plan in all things. And he shows Israel that he predicts ahead of time what's going to happen. And he says to the idols, can you tell me what's going to happen? Can you make anything come about that isn't already? He's showing this worthlessness of of anything that we would put above him. He says, are the things in your life that you're trusting, can they tell you what's to come? Can they be your steadfast anchor without failing always for whatever you go through? Can they act in such a way to make things happen that wouldn't otherwise happen? He says, no, you made them with your hands. How can they make anything happen? You fashioned them according to your own thinking and your own mind. How do you think they're going to save you? And then in verse 29, he speaks to those who would trust in idols. He says, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. It's not just that the idols are not worthy of our trust and adoration, but when we trust anything other than God, it actually affects us. When we are putting our hope and trust, even if just functionally for a moment or a season, it changes us. It affects us. We become deluded is what God says, unable to see things rightly. We begin to look at our lives and that, the things around us with a fog that hinders us from seeing God and what he wants to do. It's been said that you become like what you behold. And this is the human problem. No matter who we are, we all were made for worship. It is, it is intrinsic within the human heart. And the Bible teaches us that it's because God made us in his image and he made us for relationship with him. So we, we all are made to worship, but our problem is we exchange the rightful worship of God for the misguided and misordered worship of created things. We, we put other things and people and priorities in the place of God in our lives. And God is saying through Isaiah to worship anything other than God is to be deluded. So what hope is it if, if as a theologian of old, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, just constantly pumping out idols. You get rid of one idol, sooner or later there might be something else that you're tempted to elevate to the place of God in your life. If that's the case, what's the answer? What's the solution? The solution to our idol problem is to see and adore God. It's to behold His glory. And look at verse 40, chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, whom I have chosen, and whom my soul delights. My spirit is upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God's answer to our idolatry problem comes through His servant, is what He's saying in Isaiah 42. Two things I want us to see here in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. We're going to see that God makes known his glory through his servant. We just read verse, verse 1 in chapter 42 
uh, where it says, um, <clears throat> Behold, my servant whom I, I uphold and whom my soul delights, who I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. This is what he says. I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. He's speaking to his servant here. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So who is the servant that reveals God's glory? And, and this is where a prophecy is so rich and yet so confusing. In Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, God says that Israel is my chosen servant. Um, and so in a way, uh, some people would say, well, God is speaking here of Israel. The people of Israel as a nation are the servant that God intends to use to reveal his glory. An imperfect servant they may be, right? Uh, it says later on um, in, in verse, uh, verse 19 of chapter 42, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messengers whom I send? And so Israel as God's servant uh, often is, is, is blind to what God is doing, doesn't see how God is working, and yet God has committed himself to his people. But there's also this thing that's going on in chapter 42 and in all the servant passages in Isaiah where it's, it's not just a, a group that God is talking about, but a specific person, it seems. He will do this. I will be with him is the language that's, that's used. So I, I think what we could say as we look at the totality of these servant passages is that no doubt Israel is called God's servant. But there's clearly one whom God is going to send who will be a representative on behalf of the people of Israel through whom God will keep his promises and accomplish his redemptive work, accomplish the, the work of bringing his people out of, of exile and into the freedom and the fullness of what God intends for them. There's a representative servant who accomplishes God's purpose. And look what this servant does. In, in, in verses one through four, three times it says he will bring forth justice. Back in Isaiah 40, 27, Israel asked or said of God, my way is hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. They said to God, God, you don't see us in our suffering and in our sorrows. Where are you, God? And God says, my servant will bring forth justice. I see you and I will act. And justice is God putting things right according to his word. So justice will mean judgment. Where there is injustice and justice will mean I mean, a restoring and a renewal of what God intends. It's God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God intends to do. This, is, this includes within it our scope of, of all of our longings for a better life, of, of a better world, a just world where human society is as God means it to be without corrupting idolatries. 
Verse 1 says this justice is not just for some people, but for all people, all nations. Verse 3 says the servant will bring forth justice faithfully. He, he won't be inconsistent in bringing forth justice, but he will do it in faithfulness. And in verse 4 says it will ultimately establish justice on the earth. Justice will reign one day. And we should be able to be a people who care about justice in our world because we have a God who's revealing his glory through a servant who brings forth justice. But yet, this is also what shows us our inability, right? Like we we live in a world where we want justice, but we've had a long history of wanting justice and failing to actually bring it to be. No doubt we should long for it. But the true justice that God intends is a justice that comes about when we order life according to his word. According to what he says. And look at how he brings forth justice in verses 2 through 4. It's unlike anything that, that we might expect. It says that he won't cry aloud. He won't make his voice heard. He's, he's humble and gentle. A humble reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you know that this is how the Bible describes Jesus? In Matthew 11, verses 15 through 21, Jesus has been um, teaching and healing. He's just healed a man with a withered hand. And, And everyone is clamoring and upset about what Jesus has done. And Jesus pulls back from the from the crowd. And and Jesus says that this is in fulfillment of what Isaiah said. And he quotes verses 1 through 3. That he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faithfully burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus was making the world as God intended it to be. Just giving us a glimpse of it in his first coming. So that we would have the hope that when he returns, he will indeed establish justice on the earth and make all things new as he's always intended it to be. This is the hope and the longing of every believer. The hope of the world lies in the servant of the Lord, the one in whom God delights. He's a quiet healer, the one who uses his power for the good of others, not by bullying, but by suffering, not by demands, but by absorbing our sins and our miseries into himself. And verse 4 says, And the furthest coastlands will not dread his approach, but they will eagerly await his law. This is Jesus. Isaiah is pointing to Jesus, the one born in a manger who grew to be the servant of the Lord, a humble and quiet servant who ultimately, as we'll see in Isaiah 53, will not establish justice by demanding it, but by suffering for us. And ultimately, How do we know that God is for his glory and for our good? It's the cross. It's on the cross that God reveals his glory, that the the righteous would die for the unrighteous. In in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, it says that the gospel is the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died in our place and for our sins and rose victorious from the dead. And it's there on the cross that the glory of God is revealed for all to see and behold. It's where God doesn't overlook injustice, but he puts the judgment that we all deserve for our injustice upon Jesus. It's where God's love isn't sentimental, but God's love is sacrificial. 
Because Christ takes what we deserve upon himself to give us what we could never earn or deserve on our own. A perfect right relationship with him. Forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. On the cross, God reveals that he is ultimately and fully for his glory and yet for our good. And it says in verse 6 that he will be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. This is holistic, that God will fulfill his covenant promises for Israel through the servant. And that those covenant promises for Israel won't be just for them. But like God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, you will be a blessing to all nations. The servant will be a light for all nations. This is Jesus. Jesus came and said, I am the light, not for Israel but of the world. Jesus is the, ser- the servant who's come to reveal God's glory and to be for our good. And I think the challenge for us is to believe that this is true. In all of the ebb and flow of our daily life, like this is true in a grand and glorious way. But if I could press into your life as a follower of Christ and say there are times when When maybe just the day is hard, maybe it's parenting, maybe it's a relationship, maybe work is overwhelming, maybe the circumstances of your life seem to to all be slanted against you. And it's when we look at our circumstances and we draw the conclusion that God can't be for us, that we must remember this. Listen, this, as as we've talked about on and off over the last few weeks, Christmas time is, is full of great memories and traditions and wonderful thoughts and warm things all around. But it's also full of all kinds of discouragement. Family isn't the way that you want it to be. You don't get to go home when you thought you were going to or you get home and you wish you weren't home. You know, you, you have all of these different challenges that you face. Do you know that God is for you? He's ultimately showed that he's for you through the cross. And because he was for you on the cross, how will he not also give you all things? That's what Romans 8 says. If if you believe that that God was willing to come, born for us, died for us, rose for us, that means that in our everyday, our everyday life, big moments, ordinary mundane moments, God is for us. Let this strengthen you. That God being for us, means that he's also for his glory and that God being for his glory means that he's ultimately for us because what he wants more than anything else is for us to see him for who he is. And when we see God for who he is, it will sustain us and strengthen us no matter what we face. That's that's the good news of God being with us and God being for us. God reveals his glory through his servant. And then finally, we see that God's servant brings about global worship. Verses 10 through 17. The response that God, um, the response to God of making his glory known through his servant is global worship. Look at the command. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the deserts, the cities lift up their voices, the villages, the inhabitants of, of the town sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Here's the summary. Let them give glory to God and declare his praise in the coastlands. Let them praise God. God has revealed his glory and the only right response to that is praise. 
is worship. Not just a, a tribal God receiving tribal worship, but a global God for all nations receiving global worship for all people. Whether afar or here, God is a God worthy of global worship. It's more than just a response. It's a command to not give God the worship that he is due is our disobedience to him. And, and, and here's, here's where I want to end. This revelation of God's glory through his servant and the servant coming to bring about global worship tells us something. That our God, who is a global God, who demands global worship, is calling his people to be a global people. A people who exist so that God's glory may be seen and adored everywhere by everyone. I'll never forget as a college student reading the book by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a, um, probably hands down one of the most quintessential books on missions uh, that's been written. And here's how he says it. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That going, whether it be across the street or to the nations, that exists but for a season until God returns because the global worship that God is worthy of and demands doesn't exist everywhere by everyone. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. There will be a day when no more churches will be planted. There'll be a day when no more mission teams are sent out, no more missionaries go. Because there'll be a day when God's glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. There will be a day when God receives the global worship that he is due. And here's what I want more than anything as we think about Advent, that we would think about Advent and that we would think about God's glory. And when God reveals his glory, he intends for us to adore. But the adoration isn't complete if we keep it in our heart. The adoration is meant to burst forth, to go out so that others might know. That, that missions might happen because we want others to worship. Every single person made to worship God. And God will not tolerate worship of anything above him. And that's what the servant comes to show us. And this servant that was promised in Isaiah through the, the unfolding and the, the ever, ever um, developing clarity that God's word brings is indeed Jesus. Jesus is the servant who will be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And my question for us is, will God's glory so animate our lives that we live to make it known? Will we live to make the glory of God known in all of life? for the good of Ann Arbor, to the ends of the earth? Will we beat the drum of missions until Christ is proclaimed everywhere and, every, and to everyone? And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your life to be animated by God's glory and his mission? Listen, I, I think it, it looks like so many things that I can't even unpack for you. It looks like you playing it out in your, in your home and in your workplace. You, I, I think God has a, a means for advancing his glory and how you work and where you work, where you're willing to go to work, that you would view that piece of your life not as just the piece that provides, but as the, the piece through which God wants to make himself known. 
not just by sharing your faith at work, but by seeing all of that under the umbrella of God's glory, that you would do it in all of your relationships, that you would see all of your life, not merely just as one evangelistic conversation after another evangelistic conversation, but that your life displays God's glory. That you speak of Jesus and that you exalt Jesus and that your life says that you're living for something other than what this world lives for. That your heart isn't wrapped up in all the, all the things that this world tells us would be for, for our good. But that you believe that ultimately God is for our good. So do you adore him? And does that adoration spill over? God reveals his glory through his servant and his servant comes to bring global worship. But as God intends for global worship, there are some who will still not respond to that. Verse 7 ends with a sobering, 17 ends with a sobering word. There are some who turn back and are utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images or gods of their own making, you are our gods. So the truth of God's glory being revealed through a servant asks all of us of how do we respond? What do we do with God's glory being made known? Do we respond in in adoration and praise or do we respond with resistance? God invites us to to trust him, to adore him, to delight in him, to find our greatest good in him and in him alone. And if we haven't done that today, the Advent season reminds us and gives us the opportunity to say God came for me so that I might put my trust in him. And believer, is this the steadfast anchor of your life? Is this your hope? That God is for us and that God is for his glory. If it is, I think God will sustain us through the ups and the downs, through all that comes our way. He's ever faithful, sovereign, glorious, and God for us. Let's pray.